Welcome to Foul Play. This series is called My Aunt and the Hitman. I'm your host, Wendy C, and this is episode 6, The Funeral. In previous episodes, I've told you how the pieces of the puzzle were finally slotting into place. My aunt, Sharon, had been found strangled at her home on the 7th of December 2007. Her ex-husband, George, had found her, tied up with electrical cord and duct tape, laid on her side, on her bed, under a huge pile of clothes. The forensic team were able to get DNA from the duct tape to help their investigation. The detectives had found further DNA at George's mum's home. It was on a glass found in the ensuite bathroom that George's friend Paul had used when he stayed there in early December. The DNA on the glass matched the DNA on the duct tape. The fingerprints from that glass were traced through the police database to Paul Crine, an Englishman living in Thailand who had a previous criminal record in England for robbery, had been accused of kidnapping his girlfriend and was suspected of a murder in Thailand in 2003. Using CCTV footage, witness statements and forensics, the detectives were able to ascertain that Sharon's murder actually happened on the 4th of December 2007, not on the 7th of December 2007 when she was found. Ready for episode 6? The detectives are now sure that crime has to be involved and they are sure that the murder happened on the 4th of December. But they need to gather the evidence and make sure that they have all their ducks in a row before they make a move. While forensically examining George's phone, the police had found a text from Crine's number dated the 4th of December 2007 that said, What am I? A fucking mushroom standing here in the dark? DCI Woodall has a theory of what this meant. Our investigations showed that Sharon was actually late home. The train that she was going to catch, she missed, and she'd phoned George to say that she'd missed her train. So she was late. So I believe that Paul was there waiting for her in the house, in the dark, with the lights off, and he didn't know what was going on because Sharon should have been home and wasn't, so he texted George. So, after obtaining CCTV from the railway station, they trawled through until they found footage of George's mum meeting Crine off the train that arrived from Heathrow Airport. Their next stop was to find Crine at Heathrow Airport when he departed the UK. This would enable them to prove that Crine was in England on the 4th of December 2007. DCI Woodall takes over from here. We managed to find CCTV of Paul Crine at Heathrow Airport because, you know, George told us he'd come from Thailand, so the natural guess was that he'd travelled back to Thailand at some point. So we checked CCTV for Heathrow Airport for the evening of the 4th of December and we found him milling around in the airport for some hours because his flight took off on the 5th of December. So, Crine arrived at the airport on the 4th of December presumably going there straight after killing Sharon. But his flight was not until the next morning, the 5th of December. I think it was an early morning flight, so he was there for at least, you know, eight or nine hours just walking around the airport. And, you know, during his time walking around, he changed clothes. You know, he had this lifeguard jacket that was brightly coloured and he was carrying around these three teddy bears. He made himself very obvious in the airport terminal. With a murder suspect in another country, the case got complicated. In fact, according to the show Who Killed Sharon Birchwood? Police Tapes with Susanna Reid, 
The killing of Sharon Birchwood was one of the most complex investigations ever undertaken by Surrey police. The legal process to extradite an individual is long and smothered in red tape, so the detectives needed to be sure they had the right person. The fingerprint evidence was strong, but if they could get recent DNA evidence from Crine to match the crime scene, that would strengthen the case. Crine was living in Pattaya in Thailand, and the police were on their way to continue their investigation. He was living in a place called Pattaya. Pattaya is a beautiful part of Thailand. It's quite popular with British tourists, and there are a lot of British expats living out in Pattaya. DCI Woodall tells us exactly what happened and how Crine was set up for a lunch meeting with Barry Kenyon from the British Embassy in Thailand. We then made inquiries with the embassy in Thailand and managed to identify Paul and find out where he was living. And then I decided to deploy staff across to Thailand to do a covert recovery of Paul's DNA. We set up a meeting via some of our contacts in the British Embassy because Paul had been involved in criminality in Thailand, so the embassy staff were already aware of him and already had been talking to him previously. So it was quite seamless and it wasn't unusual for those staff to arrange to meet him. So they met up with him and it was at that point that my staff were present with the Thai police. He'd gone for lunch with Barry Kenyon at the Café Royale and he'd had a sandwich, spent some time talking with Barry about his underwater diving record. And after he'd finished his lunch, my team were there and they took the cutlery and the crockery and sent it back to the UK. Maria goes on to describe what happened next. When the covert team had seized the knives, forks and, and cutlery and plates from Paul Crime, it was sent back to me, forensically sealed, and I then had it couriered up to the laboratories and then they then did the DNA tests to compare it to the DNA that was found on the glass and also on the murder tape that was used to bind Sharon. While all of this was going on behind the scenes, it was time for us to bury Sharon. Seven weeks after her death, the 23rd of January 2008, we all gathered at a local natural burial site to say our goodbyes. It was a cold, drab winter's day. It had been raining and the car park was quite muddy, and moisture hung in the air. At my nan's request, I was dressed head to toe in purple, Sharon's favourite colour. As the family all greeted one another, it would seem to anyone looking in like any other funeral. But it was far from it. Despite us knowing at this point that George was a suspect, the police weren't ready to make an arrest, so we had to act like we didn't know. Easier said than done, with emotions running high from all of us. Even those normally calm and placid family members were not sure they would be able to keep their cool. So, as we gathered around Sharon's graveside, our family huddled together around one side, George's family were huddled together on the other, and there were a few strangers amongst us, plainclothes police officers, and I later found out squad cars just up the road. The police were taking no chances. It was a natural burial, exactly what Sharon would have wanted. As her wicker coffin was lowered into the ground, as we read out the words and poems about her zest for life, as we said our goodbyes, George stood quietly on the other side of the grave, and the police officers stood amongst us, just in case. Sharon's sister, my aunt Lauren, describes the day in her own words. Sharon had always said she wanted to be buried in a natural burial site. 
So fortunately, my brother sorted it all out. I told him which one, and he got it all sorted out. So we had the funeral. I can't really remember, but I think it was in the February of the following year. And he, George, and his mum and sister were there. And George had tried to contact the, or had contacted the, fun the funeral people, and he wanted to put something in the coffin. Luckily, I'd been warning the police liaison because I didn't want him to be involved at all. And they had found out this and said, no way, he's not got to have any involvement at all. So when we actually, he was at the funeral, he's standing at the end, everybody else has moved away from the grave and the police liaison officer stood at the opposite end of the grave waiting for him to go. And he waited there and waited there because he wanted to put something in the grave. Well, he couldn't because the police liaison was not letting him out of her sight until he moved away from the grave. He wanted apparently to put a CD or something in the coffin with her. <laughs> Love songs, presumably. So it, if he was so lucky, I was not out of the car because if I'd have seen him, I'm sure he waited until I got in the car, actually, because he knows I would have just laid him out. I would not have hesitated. I'd have just have to smash his face in because I was just absolutely livid. How dare he? And Sharon's friend Phyllis, who attended the funeral with her husband, tells me what she remembers about the day. It was dreadful because George was standing there. I, he basically was portraying himself as a grieving widower and at the end, the worst thing was he went and kissed Sharon's mum on the cheek and she afterwards, she said it was like the kiss of death. It really was just awful. I just, because we all knew what, what had gone on by that stage, but he just was just... Blatant. I, I think I just don't think he was his. I can't quite quite describe him, but he just wasn't almost a human being. He was almost an automaton. His brief was, "I'm making money, and uh, whatever gets in my way." Luckily, George didn't turn up at the wake. Luckily, the police weren't needed. But the whole experience certainly soured the day for all of us. All we wanted to do was to put Sharon to rest in peace, without any drama. Was that too much to ask? The pressure on George during his interviews was ramped up. During one of them, he was questioned about a piece of paper that was found in Sharon's home, on which she had written, Are you hoping I die so that you can use the insurance money to sort out your mess? After initially dismissing the words as nonsense, George finally admitted that he had treated her appallingly. And the team had found an email from George offering Crine a job in the United Kingdom. DC Deacon tells us what it said. That's the email which, again, a lot of work was done retrieving from his, his computers and laptops. It was actually George offering Paul Crine a job in the UK, I think as a security consultant or something like that. And when he, that was shown to him, and it, saw, it just completely, like, don't know what you're talking about. He said, well, that's, that's from your... Your computer, that's your address. Harriet's Lane address, I think, on there. It wasn't a complete email, but it was enough to say that you're actually offering this bloke a job, you know. The net was now closing in around George fast. And after the detectives confirmed that Crine's DNA definitely matched that at the crime scene, George was finally arrested. DCI Whiddle tells us how this decision was made. 
I would say I played the long game with this case and George gave us an awful lot of information. I decided to nominate George as a suspect when we had confirmed that the DNA on the tape used to bind Sharon was that of Paul Crimes, because that then gave me the link across from George to Paul to the murder. And it was at that point that I designated George as a suspect. We did a lot of searching around George's devices as soon as we began to get suspicious of him. And we found an email that he'd actually sent to Paul Crime where he had used Paul Crime's name. So it was untrue that he didn't know who Paul was. When we arrested George, he was extremely angry with us and felt that we'd got it wrong, that we shouldn't have been arresting him. And I think in George's mind, he wasn't responsible because he hadn't actually killed Sharon. So I don't know whether in his mind he didn't make that connection or felt that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing because he wasn't the one that actually killed her. So he was quite annoyed at us in interview. Yeah, he was just very angry. I think he felt because he'd cooperated with us as a witness for such a long time, that how could we then now change the boundaries and make him a suspect? It was time for the detectives to prepare their files of evidence for the Crown Prosecution Service, known as the CPS, ready for trial. Well, preparing for court is quite an extensive job. You have to present the evidence to the Crown Prosecution Service to start with, so you will send them a case summary of exactly what you think happened. And within that case summary, you'll provide all the evidence, such as the statements, the forensic tests, the interviews, and you would present that all to the Crown Prosecution Service. The Crown Prosecution Service then review that evidence, often when somebody is still in custody. And on a case of this gravity, and there was a lot of evidence, we would have been in discussion with the Crown Prosecution Service before we arrested George, potentially. And then we present them that evidence whilst he's in custody, having been given his final opportunity at interview to give his side of the story from the evidence presented. And then the Crown Prosecution give the charging decision. Then all that evidence goes before the court and we get nominated a barrister. The trial of Graham George Birchwood in 2009 at Croydon Crown Court lasted for nine weeks. The family attended as often as they could, with Sharon's oldest brother, my uncle, and his wife being there day in and day out. There were many, many witnesses. Eyewitnesses who saw Sharon on the 4th of December, family members, medical experts, neighbours, the list goes on. Sadly, I was recovering from major ankle surgery and was unable to attend for most of the trial. But on the first day I was off bed rest, the police drove me to court, just so that I could be there for one day. The courtroom was small. We were sat to the side, a small cluster of chairs. I was at the end, my legs still in plaster, propped up on a cushion on a stool in front of me. The judge entered the court and everyone rose from their chairs, except me, of course. I was given an exemption on medical grounds. There were three witnesses due in court on that day. All were from George's side. The first two witnesses were there to try and explain that while George could remember many obscure details while he was being interviewed, he couldn't remember basic details from the few days surrounding Sharon's murder. The first witness they called was an expert on one of the drugs that George was taking. Georgia claimed that this medicine affected his memory, and so his barristers brought in a witness to confirm this. The man arrived in a dark suit, carrying a briefcase. 
He stood in the witness box and the judge asked him to read from the information leaflet the possible side effects of the medicine. The man had not bought the drug's information with him. The judge seemed pretty annoyed as we waited for copies to be provided. It does seem odd that you're called into court as a witness on the side effects of a particular medication and that you don't take with you the information leaflet that comes with the medication that explains the possible side effects. The second witness was a medical expert on a condition that George suffered from. He confirmed to the court that, yes, this condition could, in some cases, cause issues with memory. The expert was asked if this was what George had experienced, but the witness was unable to answer this, as George's team had not allowed him to examine George, which seems odd. If you're calling a medical expert as part of your defence, why would you not allow them to examine you? And the third witness, an eyewitness who claimed to have seen Sharon after the 4th of December, didn't turn up. So the day finished early and we all left just after lunch. It was a strange experience and not quite what I expected. Why was the first witness so unprepared? Why was the second witness not allowed to examine George? What happened to the third witness? Did he just get bored? Was he not aware that he could get a summons and be arrested for not appearing in court? Personally, I would have liked to have attended court for more days, but unfortunately was unable to for medical reasons. My Aunt Lauren was called as a witness. She told me about the experience. It was at Croydon Crown Court. I had to be a witness. I went in to the witness stand and he was looking at me the whole time I was on the witness stand. He didn't take his eyes off me. I was in there 15, 20 minutes and then it was lunchtime. I didn't have to go back in. But I could tell that the judge had pretty good idea what sort of man he was dealing with. We had all heard about the piece of paper that the police had found, where Sharon had written about George wanting her dead so that he can claim the insurance money, but we had never seen it. While Lauren was on the stand, she was given three pieces of paper with Sharon's writing on. The first I saw of anything about being wanting her dead was when I was on the stand for George's trial and I was given three pieces of paper, one of which I'd seen before, two of which I hadn't, and on it it said she'd written, had you intended to do away with me all along? And obviously I found that quite upsetting because I hadn't seen that before. I asked Lauren if George tried to make a defence. Not really, because he'd gone through six lots of solicitors. He'd not kept with the defence people that started the case. So really there was no defence because they had no idea what they were dealing with because it had been through to so many different hands. I asked DCI Woodall the same question. Yes, George did give evidence. The basic line of his defence was that we had got it wrong. On the 9th of June 2009, after nine long weeks, the jury gave their verdict. Out of the 12 jurors, 11 agreed that George was guilty of the murder of my lovely Aunt Sharon. He was jailed for 32 years with no parole. Judge Warwick McKinnon said in his summing up, This was carefully planned in the most dreadful circumstances. Clearly you are a very dangerous man who all along has tried to evade his responsibility. You have shown no remorse whatsoever, and there are no mitigating features. This was a murder committed with the expectation of gain. The judge went on to say, There was also an appalling breach of trust. Sharon herself was vulnerable and severely debilitated. 
This was, in effect, a cold-blooded execution of a frail and vulnerable woman in her own home for financial gain. He also took the time to commend DCI Woodall and her team. It was an investigation involving an enormous amount of work. I formally commend DCI Woodall and her team for an intelligent, diligent, industrious and painstaking investigation. According to the judge, George's accomplice stood to be paid for what he did, if he hadn't already been paid, and that a significant degree of planning and premeditation was involved in bringing in a man from Thailand. This was his reasoning behind the long sentence. As George was led away from the dock, he smiled at his family and friends. He thought he was smarter than everybody else. He thought he was above everybody else. He thought he was more intelligent than everybody else and therefore, presumably, one would think that he would think he would never get caught because he was so smart. While I was laid up after my surgery, I acted as a family spokesman with the police media team. I would get a daily call from them asking if we would like to speak to this magazine or newspaper or go on this breakfast TV show. The answer was always, will this help another family? If not, then the answer is no. I was also asked to write a statement from the family in case George was convicted. It's very hard to write a statement about how you will feel if something happens, but this is what I wrote. It was read out by the police in front of the courthouse after George had been convicted. Sharon was a kind, caring member of the family who kept herself to herself and would never cause any harm or upset to anybody. This made what happened to her even harder to comprehend. In the 18 months since her death, we have been living through a nightmare as more and more facts about the case have been released. This has affected the whole family, especially her 82-year-old mother, who has suffered serious health problems as a consequence. Now that George has been convicted, we feel that justice has been done for Sharon and hope to be able to rebuild our lives and move on. We would like to thank the Surrey Police, particularly the family liaison officers, for all their hard work throughout this case and for their support to our family during this very difficult time. Thank you for listening to episode 6 of My Aunt and the Hitman. In the next episode, we will be returning to Thailand. When we extradited Paul from Thailand, there was a front door key in his wallet. That front door key, initially... I considered maybe to be the missing spare key from Harriet's Lane. So we checked that key in the door locks for Harriet's Lane and it didn't fit. But when we checked it in the door lock for George's current wife's house, it did open the door. This podcast was written and produced by me, Wendy C. It was edited by the amazing team at Foul Play and Arclight Media. Any profits made from this podcast will go to Friends of the Earth and Refuge both charities that were close to my aunt Sharon's heart.